Well, good morning. Welcome to everybody joining us online and on site here today. We're glad you're here because today we're continuing our sermon series called Leading Questions, where we are looking at some of the first questions or the kind of the lead-off questions that certain uh, select individuals in the Bible asked. If you're with us in the previous weeks, we already looked at the first question God asks in the Bible. We've looked at the first question that Jesus asks in the Bible. And now today, we're going to jump back into the book of Genesis, and we are going to consider the very first question that Satan asks in the Bible. And we'll probably know where this comes from. It comes from when he tempted Adam and Eve to question God and their ability to trust him. And it's a very important question for us to focus on and talk about. Sometimes these aren't easy things to talk about, talking about temptation. It's not always easy, but it's important to do so and to look at this particular passage. Because as I think we're going to see today, is that the question he asked Adam and Eve, he still asks today. There's a version of this question that he will ask each and every single one of you that often shows up in the form of a temptation. Now, if we talk about temptation, I'm going to assume that we already know a few things about temptation because we're all experienced in these types of things. And, and what do we know about temptation? First of all, I think it's safe to assume that we all know that everybody is tempted by something. True? True. We also know that what tempts one person may not tempt another person. For example, some people know that one of the temptations I have to be careful of is sour gummy candies. Like, in Costco sells them in really well-priced big bags now. And if I have one of those in the house, I will lock myself in the closet, and I will finish the bag. Like, where's Mark gone? He's in the clean. And I will wait till the bag is empty, and then a little sugar at the bottom, you know, pour that in, right? But if I'm at work, you know, we have a little jar of them on Lisa's desk in her office, and that's how she gets people to come visit her. And so when I'm having a bad day, Lisa knows, because I will sit down, and I will hold the jar in my hand. And I will just sit there, and she'll be like, what's up? Because <laughs> she will know. Now, that's, that's one thing that I have to be careful of. Nadine is a bit different. Like, if we have those in the house, she likes them. And she might have one here or there. But she can easily say no to those things. However, if we're watching TV one evening, and I say, hey, I'm going to go down to the kitchen. Do you want me to get something? No, I'm fine. I will come back up with a bag of chips. And as I walk around the corner, I'll see her stare at me. And I'm like, oh, she's... She's kind of staring at me. She's kind of locked on to me. Oh, wait, it's the chips. It's, it's not me. It's actually the chips that she's looking at. And she won't say anything, and she didn't want something, but suddenly as I sit down with that bag of chips, hunger all of a sudden <laughs> emerges within her, and she will silently eat those chips. That's one of her things. It's not as big of a deal for me, but for her, it's huge. But, so we all know we're tempted by something. We know that what tempts one person will not necessarily tempt another person. But here's something else we know about temptation, is that just the right temptation at just the right time, will seemingly come out of nowhere for each person here. Now, I remember the story this one time of a, of a pastor I used to work with who had a heart attack. And, and he recovered and he was okay. But his doctor said, hey, look, you've got to clean up your diet. You've got to start exercising. And really, you've got to drop quite a few pounds. Because this is literally a matter of life and death for you. And so he took it seriously. He went home and he emptied his pantry out of like all the Oreos and the Doritos and the Frosted Flakes. And he started eating like cauliflower rice and, and all these sorts of things that you do to start eating a little healthier. And he started going for walks in the evening. And he started doing some sit-ups and squats and push-ups at home. And he started to feel really good about himself. 
and his health and how he was doing, the progress he was making. He thought, you know what, I've never done this before, but things are going so well. I'm going to take it to the next level, and I'm going to go join a gym. And he saw an advertisement for Planet Fitness. It said, feel fit-tacular for $15 a month. He thought, well, I don't feel fit-tacular, but I feel pretty good, and that's the place for me because I want to be fit-tacular. And so he joins the gym. He starts going to this place that he feels is like this safe place that he can go for continued health and continued fitness, free of temptations. I walk through the doors of the gym. It's just me and the machines and the treadmills and the sweat and health and fitness. And he walked in the door one day, and there was a table set up covered in donuts and bagels and cream cheese. This is, this is a real thing, by the way. They do this. As a thank you to their members, on the first Monday of every month, they have, or first Tuesday of every month, they do uh, bagel days and donut days. On the first Monday, they do pizza days. You have you thinking that's my kind of gym, right? But, <laughs> but this is the situation. Out of nowhere, in this place of safety, this place, the sanctuary of health that he thought he was going to get nice and fit, and he was safe and free from temptations. There it is, staring him in the face, faced with that moment of choice. He's thinking, do these guys really want me to lose weight? This was my safe place. I can say no to the Oreos. I threw those out of my pantry, but a honey glazed. That's a different situation. And if they're here at the gym, they must be okay then, right? And, and it's just one, and I just worked out. And you can see the mental calculations that start to take place all of a sudden when this temptation shows up at the right time at the right place. And his next move will determine, does he stay the path that the doctor prescribed, or will he choose to go his own way? And in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve find themselves in a rather similar predicament where they're tempted to follow the prescribed path that they've been walking with God, but suddenly an alternative path gets presented. When Satan appears to Eve and asks his first question, did God really say you shouldn't eat that? Did God really say that that was wrong? See, here's the thing about the question. This question actually has nothing to do with the fruit. But it has everything to do with tempting Adam and Eve to indulge in a momentary pleasure that will ultimately cost them their greatest treasure. Exchanging the momentary pleasure for their greatest treasure. And we see that the story behind this question takes place in the book of Genesis chapter 3. If you want to follow along in your pew Bibles, right at the beginning, page 2, is where you're going to find this. If you want to follow along, there are sermon notes on the pew portal. You can scan the code in front of you as well. And what we see is we turn to Genesis chapter 3. The first two chapters of Genesis, God's creative work is revealed in the universe. That, that includes and works up to this beautiful Garden of Eden paradise. Where Adam and Eve walked and talked and lived in perfect harmony and community with God. And this Garden of Eden, this entire paradise was theirs. Where they were, they were free to roam and they were free to eat of the trees. And they were free to use it as they saw fit. Except for one tree. And we read about this called, it's referred to as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, you cannot eat from this tree. If you eat from this tree, you will certainly die. Now, here's a curious thing I've always found about the Garden of Eden. It's estimated from some of the markers that were given, some of the descriptions were given. It's estimated the garden could have been around somewhere around 1,500 kilometers square. That's a big garden. 
1,500 kilometers square. Lots of room to roam. Lots of freedom to go. And if you knew in the middle of the garden there was one tree to stay away from, you could have chosen to cut down other trees to build like a one-kilometer fence around that. You could have cut down other trees to build a sign that said, danger, stay out. You could have chosen to do those things and to stay away from it. But we're all created with this thing called free will. It's part of our nature. It's part of their nature, where we can choose to obey or we can choose to reject and go our own way. And, and one day, Eve chooses to wander by the tree. And as she wanders by the tree, Satan, in the form of a certain serpent, speaks to her and says this. He says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, words like crafty and shrewd often get put into a negative light because of this verse. But in the reality, things like craftiness and shrewdness and, and even snakes for that matter are, are actually neutral. They're not good or bad. What determines if those things, those abilities, those objects, those characters are good or bad is how they're used. That's what determines if they're good or bad. And Satan uses a relatively innocuous question in a negative way as he begins to bait Eve into a rather dangerous conversation. And as we're going to see, his tactics are very subtle. They're very subtle because he quotes God's command with just a slight tweak to the wording and Eve takes the bait in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees of the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it or you will die. The first part's true. The first part of her answer she gives is, is completely accurate. We can read this in Genesis 2, verse 16 through 17, where God says to them there, he says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. That was true. She, she remembered that accurately. But she added, did you notice, she, she added this little second directive. She says, you must not even touch it. Maybe it was accidental. Like, maybe she misrecalled the exact words that God had said. Maybe it was, maybe it was a long time ago, and, and it was, she knew she wasn't allowed to, but she couldn't remember the exact words. Or maybe she slightly misunderstood the words. Maybe she was adding this part because she was trying to be emphatic. God said, don't eat it. And if he said, don't eat it, I'm not even going to look at it. I'm not even going to touch it. I'm not even going to think about it. Maybe that's why she added it. And, and her additional statement is innocent enough. It's true to the intent of God's command. She, I think we can safely agree she's trying to honor God's command with how she responds. But the end result is that she does misquote God. She does present God's commandment in an overly restrictive manner. And that's all Satan needed. Just, just a little opening. Just a little thread to pull on to see if, she could make, if he could make this all unravel. And that's what he does, is he starts to zero in on God's fairness. In verse 4, Satan says to her, Certainly you will not die, the servant said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, and you will know good and evil. You will be like God, and you will know good and evil. You see, every compelling deception is built upon a half-truth. And here Satan introduces just enough truth, just enough extra bits on top of the truth 
Just enough to create some doubt. You see, if Satan had been too direct, if, if he'd been too bold and said, God didn't say that, or this isn't that tree, you can eat this tree, that's fine, that would have been too easy. That, that would have been too easy for Eve to reject and go, no, I'm just moving on. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm going to move on. That bold, direct type of attack would have been, been like the pothole in the street that's got like a four-foot pylon in it and a sign that says danger. That would have been like a, too easy to avoid. But Satan's so much more crafty than that. He comes out and it goes, did, did, did God say that? Is that exactly what God said? Eve, did you, ever, did you ever wonder why God said that? Does it seem odd to you that God would be so restrictive with that? Eve, are you sure you know what it meant? Are you sure you know what God meant when he said that? See, that's crafty. That's, that's, that, that's taking craftiness and using it in a negative light. That's, that's like those nighttime snow-covered road craters, right, that, that just surprise you when you hit them. You feel like your wheel is going to fall off, but it's too late. You've hit them. Now, here's what we need to understand about the nature of these temptations. Here's what we need to understand about Satan's angle and, and his purposes in this. It goes beyond the temptation. See, his purpose here with Eve is not primarily to trick her into tasting forbidden fruit. That's not his end, that's not his end goal. You see, his purpose is when he tempts you is not to primarily make you do bad things. No, no. You see, the temptation is a means to an end. Because the end goal of all these temptations, the reason that he tempts with momentary pleasures is because he wants to cost you your greatest treasure. He wants to steal from you your experience of the power of your relationship with God. That's the end goal. So I had a friend uh, back in B.C. who who strictly obeyed God's command to tithe. And it's a good word from God to, to faithfully tithe, to give back to the Lord. And, and, and the way that he would do this is he was faithfully, regularly giving 10% of their income, and he was precise, he would do his budget, he was precise the 10%, and that, to the penny, he would write the check every single time they got paid. And he experienced incredible joy and blessing, which was promised from this practice. But one day I ran into him, and he was having a bad day. He was having a terrible Monday. And he was in a panic. And he says, I realized the night before I miscalculated and I only gave 7%. And I'm having a terrible day now. I have to go give that other 3% today or my day is going to continue to be awful. See, he had become so convinced that God was punishing him for the shortfall in this tithing. And, and, and that he needed to give the rest in order to get back in God's good books again. So I share that story with you because the main point is before you go home today, make sure you give your full 10% or tomorrow's going to be awful. <laughs> no, that would be very manipulative of me to do that. I wouldn't do that. Tithing is a good principle, but that's, that's the main point, is that he took a good word from God. He took a good word from God, but then he added to it. And in adding to it, it got twisted, and it got twisted into something that was not what it was intended to be. You see, most often temptation begins with something good. It begins with something good like food, rest, sexual intimacy, desire to be accepted. It starts with something good, something God ordained and created and blessed, and then it gets twisted. And for Eve, Satan took God's good words. He twisted them. And in twisting them, it entered in a degree of doubt. 
And it brought chaos into her life and into her mind. And the end goal was, was to make her ask the question, is God really as good as I thought he was? The end goal was, can, can, I, can I actually trust God the way that I thought I could? Maybe God's keeping something from me. Because I'm not allowed to do this, he's keeping something from me. Maybe it's time for my own judgment to step in and make my own decisions for such things. And this is the basis of every temptation that we face today, folks. Why obey God when I could be God? Why obey God when I can make my own choices, my own direction? Why obey God when I can be God? Why obey when I can go my own way? And we see this in the world all around us. We see this in children when a mom says to put the toy back at the toy store and you can see it in the eye of the three-year-old contemplation, not sure if they're going to or not. We can experience it when we open the Bible and it says, thou shalt not, and we think, why not? And then we choose to do what we want. We see it in the world all around us. The root of all this is, can I trust God? Does God know better than I do? Is God good enough, trustworthy enough, or can I choose for myself? Is the nature of all of these temptations. Now, see, Eve had gone so far down this line of questioning at this point. It's possible. We don't know. It doesn't say in the story. But she may even have at this point had the fruit in her hand, just looking at it, examining it, feeling this internal tension of what do I do next? And as we read the most tragic words ever written into history, starting for us in verse 6, sin enters the world. It says this, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, and she ate of it. And she also gave some to her husband, Adam, who was there with her, and he ate of it as well. When did Adam get there? He was there the whole time. Said nothing. Chose not to correct her line of questioning, her comments. Said nothing. Didn't say, honey, don't do it. There's a joke in here about correcting your wife, and I'm going to choose the path of Adam to go silent on that one too. <laughs> but in this, it reveals these three motivations that the New Testament says still drives the world of temptation today. These three motivations, this lust of the flesh, where something was physically appealing, lust of the eyes, where we see it, there's this desire for it, and the pride of life, which in this case was the ability to make them wise. And as I said, those most tragic words written in scriptures, the most tragic words written in history took place in that moment as they ate of it. And then continuing in verse 7, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed together fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God in the trees of the garden. Satan's half-truth became real. Their eyes were opened. They were able to see. Just, just not as they expected. So for the first time, they realized that they were naked and they felt shameful. And so they attempted to compensate for their shamefulness by trying to cover themselves and hide themselves from each other. And then they hear God's approach in the garden and they feel the guilt of their sin that drives them to hide, not just from each other, but to hide from him, to avoid the consequences of their sin. And while they did not die physically, Satan was right about that. They, they didn't die physically. They did experience this spiritual and this relational separation that felt like death. 
Because for the first time in their lives, they had felt a separation, this wedge driven between them and between them and God. Because they succumbed to the temptation of momentary pleasure, it cost them their greatest treasure. I think we all know how that feels to some degree, don't we? See, we're all born with this sin nature in our lives from that point forward. We know about this. Therefore, we know something else about sin, don't we? We know that, that everybody is tempted. We, we know that what tempts one person does not tempt another person. We know that sin can show up out of nowhere. Like, like temptation can show up out of nowhere when you least expect it. But we know one other thing about it, don't we? Is that to some degree, there are consequences to our sins. It brings change to our lives. Sometimes it's minor change. Sometimes it can be a simple, basic little thing, like you're tempted to stay up late and binge on Netflix, and then the next day you're tired and you're not as productive at work. It could be something small, like when you go to the gym and they have a table of donuts and you eat a donut, you're like, well, I guess I'm going to look like a donut. And so you eat this. Something small and minor. Sometimes the change is private. No one knows but you. But you do know the negative thoughts. You do know the shame and the guilt and the sense of failure leads to these negative thoughts and, this, and it forms a self-image that is so different than what God says about you. But sometimes the change is serious. The consequences can be serious. Where if you steal money, you can be fired from your job or even convicted if you are tempted by such a thing. Or pastors that I know who have committed adultery and it costs them not just their ministry but their families. Temptation has consequences, sometimes minor, sometimes major, sometimes private, but it changes things. The effects of sin can be devastating, but, there's a but, but I have good news for you. Not only has Jesus Christ defeated sin and defeated death upon the cross, offering forgiveness, offering freedom, offering hope and victory and new life to all people who will place their trust in him, not only is that offered to us, but also in our playbook for life, in the word of God that he has given to us, in our playbook for life, it includes Satan's game plan for temptation. Isn't that good news? We have his game plan because that gives us an advantage. You see, because the same pattern that's used in Genesis chapter 3, the same pattern that's used there is the same pattern, the same tactics that are used against us today. And they're described for us in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, where we read this. It says, each person is tempted when? When they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is the game plan. This is game plan. This is a look into the devil's playbook. It reveals a four-step strategy we're going to walk through quickly, referred to as the temptation cycle. And I think you'll see how this gets played out in each of your lives as well as you consider the four steps we go through. You see, first of all, it talks about being dragged away. And this is sort of a fishing term, if you will. This idea of being enticed and dragged away is a fishing term. It refers to the idea of bait being dropped in the water, some sort of attractive lure that gets dropped in the water to kind of draw the fish out. By the way, you're the fish in this analogy. It draws the fish out from their place of safety. And they start to swim around the boot lure. They start to swim around it, and you kind of, you know, if you ever go fishing, you got to shake the rod a little bit, right? You got to see if you can entice it a little more to, to swim a little closer and think, there's no danger. It's, it's just bait. It's just dinner. There's no hook. 
Same thing happens for all of us, doesn't it? We, we have these lures that are dropped into our lives and the world around us. Maybe it's simple as you're walking down the street and something catches your eye. And it leads to a temptation. Sometimes you're on your phone just looking at the internet or social media and something catches your eye. Something on the internet that does these sorts of things. You have this momentary thought, this momentary desire. See, see a big part of Satan's job is to go fishing. He goes fishing, looking to see who and how he can get your eyes off of God's, what God's called you to and what he can get you to focus upon that he's tempting you towards. Do you think I need that? I deserve that. I wonder what that tastes like, what that feels like. I wonder what that would be like. And when you have those thoughts, you're enticed. And enticing leads to conception, this, this process of forming and hatching a plan. You've seen the lure, you've seen the bait, and now you're plotting, how do I get it? How can I nibble it without taking the hook? And you start from a, safe, a, place, a place of safety. But then you gradually, but here's the key, and if we're honest with ourselves, folks, we, 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 we gradually move from our place of safety out, but we do it knowingly. We knowingly know we've come from our place of safety, and we know what we're heading towards. And sometimes there's turmoil and conflict inside of us because we know what we're walking towards, but we keep walking because there's this stage of conception where the knowing, the plotting, the planning, how do I get over there until all of a sudden we're in a more dangerous spot than we ever planned to be. When you open the fridge and you see the chocolate cake, but you choose the carrots. But then you go back. When you're walking through the mall, because it's good exercise, but you happen to take rest breaks at every shoe store. When you're on the internet, you're going, I wonder what's in the news today. And then increasingly, the internet searches get more dangerous, a little more suggestive. See, it's like the proverbial frog in the pot. Right, where you slow, the frog is in the pot of water, you slowly turn the heat up, and he chooses to not jump out. He just lets himself sit there, I guess, a little warmer. Oh, it's a little more comfortable, it's a little better. And all of a sudden, to the point where the water's boiling, and he's cooked. He's cooked because it gives birth to sin next. Conception always gives birth to sin. Naturally follows conception, doesn't it? This is where what we had dreamt about, what we had plotted and employed towards, is finally carried out. The tantalizing bite of bait has been tasted. But the hook wasn't avoided. You see, just as Adam and Eve took a bite of the fruit, not only did they experience the momentary taste of that fruit, but also led to the final step, which they also tasted death. Because sin will promise incredible joy. Sin will promise that, no, just taste it. It's going to be so good. So fulfilling is what it's going to promise. But it never delivers on that promise. You see, regardless of the lie the enemy tells you, sin cannot bring life. Sin can only bring death. It cannot bring joy. It can only bring shame. It cannot bring innocence. It only brings guilt. It cannot bring pleasure. It brings pain. It does not bring intimacy. It brings isolation. And that is your enemy's goal. It's to drive that wedge between you and your identity in Christ. Between you and the community of Christ where you find encouragement and support. To drive a wedge between you and Christ. And he will tempt you with momentary pleasures that will cost you those greatest treasures. So this is the devil's scheme. And maybe, maybe for some of us, we need to get out a pen and paper and we need to kind of write down in our lives, okay, here's, here's the thing that keeps tripping me up. And we need to work it backwards. Say, so here's, here's what it looks like and here's what I do. 
Well, well here's the steps I took towards it, and, and here's where I started plotting, and here's I can work it backwards to where I was enticed. Maybe we need to actually do the math on that and see, here's where I keep falling down, but if I work it backwards, I can see the enticement. I can see the conception. I, I can see where it leads to sin and it leads to death. Maybe we need to do that. But even if you do do that, you're going to wonder, well, how do I wage war against it? And to help you understand how do we wage war against it, I want to start by asking you a question. At what point in that four-step process do people tend to start pushing back? Where do we usually wage the war? We typically wage the war. Let's give you the answer because where it usually happens, and I, from, from years of, of just being alive in my own life, but also years of pastoral counseling, you know where it usually happens? We usually start to wage war between conception and birth. That's where it happens. We start to wage war between conception and birth. Where we go, oh no, I've gone too far. i got to start pulling back. And we end up having poor results when we start to wage war at that point because once sin is conceived, 99.9% of the time it leads to death. Uh, sorry, it leads to birth and birth leads to death. Once conception has taken place, it leads to birth. This is one of the big reasons that people fail to have victory over temptations is because they're battling at the wrong stage. See, where we need to start fighting the battle is one step earlier. We need to start battling between enticement and conception. And the reason we need to start battling there is because we can't stop the enticement. We live in a world where there are going to be lures dropped in the world all around us. That's going to happen. If you want to try and stop the enticement, the best thing you could do is move to a desert island. But even there, you're probably going to eventually see like a monkey with a bigger coconut or something. And you're going to be like, i got to get his coconut. And you're going to be tempted to go do that. The world all around us is going to entice us. We can't fight it at the enticement stage, but we can fight between enticement and conception. That's where we can fight. That's where we can fight. That's where we can choose to wage the war. That's where we can learn to do so, by not entertaining the bait. But when we see it, not allowing our minds to start plotting on how we're going to get it, that's where we start to wage the war. Because you see, here's, here's, here's a truth of life, whether we're talking physical, but even spiritual life as well, is that whatever you choose to feed in your life will thrive, but whatever you choose to starve will die. And if we choose to wage war between enticement and conception, if that's where we make our choice, if that's where we make our stand, that's where we will choose if we're going to feed or if we're going to starve the sin that comes from that. And the promise of the, God, of the word of God is this, that if you will starve out temptation at that stage, if you will not entertain the bait, if you will start to stand your ground at the enticement stage before it gets to conception, that temptation will die. Temptation will die. In the same vein, if you have been feeding temptation in the past and it's been leading throughout this process, very likely has caused something else to starve in your life. And that very well would be your relationship with God. And not because he doesn't love you. And not because you've stopped believing in him. But quite often because when we allow ourselves to feed the temptation that goes to conception, that gives birth to sin, that leads to death, quite often when we allow that to take place, the consequence of sin, remember, temptation leads to sin, which leads to consequence in our lives, is the shame and the guilt. And we start to go, I'm not worthy of this relationship. We start to have this negative self-concept. And when we do that, we push back. We talk about this week one, where we hide from God and we, we, we quit reading the Bible because they don't like, it's just drawing to the surface what we're wrestling with. We, we quit praying because we may not feel like we're worthy to pray. God doesn't want to hear from me. And we remove ourselves from fellowship because what if they know? 
You see, when we allow sin to thrive, our relationship with God starts to die. But over time, we start to feel like we're losing touch with part of ourselves. There's something inside of us that's dying, but we need to feed that. And that is one of the best ways that we fight in that stage is by feeding what we want to live and allowing the temptation to die. By feeding our community within the church and with other followers of Christ to surround ourselves with godly people. So that we have support, so that we have encouragement, so we can build accountability into our lives, so we can fight at that stage. We can feed our prayer lives where we can share privately with God. And he already knows. Don't, don't think you're surprising God when you bring the hard stuff to him. He already knows. Just honestly share it with him. It's amazing how he enters into it with us. When he says, where are you, as we talk about first week, and enters into it and wants to bring order to the chaos that we're feeling. But we can feed our prayer life as we collectively gather together as believers and carry our burdens with one another as well. We can feed our relationship with Christ by getting into the word, by reading the word, by memorizing the word. Remember Jesus, when he was in the desert, he was tempted. How did he push back? He was enticed, but he never let the enticement go to conception. How? In that moment, he quoted scripture. He pulled out his sword of the word of God and he fought back. He never allowed it to go to conception. Never allowed it to go beyond enticement. And we can feed our relationship with him by giving and serving because quite often... The things that we're tempted by fall into the categories of our time, treasure, and talents. And if we're giving those away to serve others, it's hard to be tempted by them when we're serving others with them. See, folks, remember, the enemy's plan is to tempt you with momentary pleasures that will cost you your greatest treasure. That's the plan. And what is that treasure? It is your identity in Christ. It is your community with the people of Christ. And it is ultimately your relationship with God. He wants to drive a wedge between all of these things. But I wrap up and and I close with this, and I'll call the worship team out to the platform as I close with this as well. Is that know one thing. All Satan can do is tempt you. That's all he can do. All he can do is make you think that you're a failure. He can make you think that you're unworthy. He can make you feel like you're lost. That's all that he can do is make you think those things and be tempted. And we will face battles every day of that nature. And you know what? There's a chance, good chance, we're going to lose some of those battles. But do not allow him to allow victory in one battle to make you think that he has won the war. Because the war has already been decided. The war for you and for your life and for your eternal destiny has already been decided and already won by Jesus Christ. Who has already been declared the victor. And in whose identity we can share when we have our lives in him. See, the best Satan can do is to tempt you, to track you, get you off track, to discourage you, to keep you from experiencing the power of the new life that you have in Christ. He can try and entice you away from those things. Entice you away from God's word, God's will, twist God's words, make you try to doubt and question God. That's the best he can do is try and tempt you from those things, to entice you to move towards those things. And when we succumb to those temptations, there's real consequences. And he experiences a degree of success because we suffer loss. We might suffer loss of the feeling of victory we've had for a long time. We may suffer loss in relationships. We, we may suffer loss of position or reputation in the world. We, we may suffer loss of our self-image. We can suffer these things, and that's the farthest his victory goes, because he can never change who you are in Christ. And as real and difficult as those sufferings can be and those losses can be because of the sins that we have chosen to succumb to. And we don't want to take that lightly. Satan cannot change who you are in Christ. Because when you give your life to Jesus, 
when you say, thank you for paying the price for my sins that came to light because of the temptations I succumbed to. Thank you, Jesus, for paying that price that made me a new creation where the old is gone and the new has come. The old is gone and the new has come. Death is gone and life has come. Shame is gone and joy has come. Guilt is gone and innocence is here. The pain is gone and the pleasure has arrived. Isolation is no more because intimacy with the Father and the people of God is ours as children of God. You see, therefore, when we consider our position in Christ, we have everything we need to fight the battle of temptation. Because we don't fight on our own power alone. We fight in the power of Christ as we stand in the victory of Christ, the victory and the power that he won for us and makes available to us. And so as we consider that reality in which we can stand, I invite you to stand with me right now and join us in singing and reflecting upon this song as we think about the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us and the fact that the battle may be fought in our lives but does not belong to us. The battle belongs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.